Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you guys. Um, if you would, um, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Ephesians 4, or you can just follow along in the order of worship. Um, I'll be reading the first 16 verses, though. Hear now God's word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in him in every way, who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask now what Paul asked long ago for this church in Ephesus, that you would give us all a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of your Son. Father, that you would give us the gift of illumination, which comes by your Spirit, and that you'd help us to know what is the hope to which we've been called. I pray right now that all of us, we would know the immeasurable greatness of your power, that you work in us, to us, and for us, for those who believe. The same power that was worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he ascended on high. We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I have to confess, I feel kind of naked up here because I'm used to a pulpit that's a huge box and covers my entire body. And so my legs are probably going to shake, um, I think. I don't usually know what goes on from waist down. And so if you see me moving about, I apologize if it distracts you. But if you follow the church calendar, you would know that last week, which was on Thursday, May 17th, it was the day that uh, certain traditions, when they follow the church calendar, celebrate as the day of ascension. And certain traditions, they celebrate this day with as much vigor as we evangelicals do Christmas and Easter. And rightly so, I believe, because the ascension is part of Christ's work. You'll remember after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to his disciples and many people, and he said to them in the near future he would send the promise of the Father 
which is the Holy Spirit, and that he would clothe them on high. But in order for that to happen, he had to ascend to his Father and go up to heaven, and he would take his seat upon his throne and be given the name above every name. And he would be enthroned as the Lord of creation. Now, as evangelicals, we love to talk about the gospel, and rightly so, we focus on the cross, on the resurrection, and that's totally right. We should do that. But when is the last time you heard the ascension as part of the gospel? Maybe you do all the time because your church name is Ascension Presbyterian, but it seems to me a lot of churches, it's a neglected doctrine. And um, this morning, I want to spend time and I want to look at the story of the ascension. And then I want to answer this question. How does the ascension inform our identity and task as the church? So let's go to Ephesians. Now, Ephesians, it's an interesting letter because it's a circular letter. So it was meant to be passed around to multiple churches in the region of Asia Minor. Paul sent it to Ephesus. And you'll notice as you read throughout this letter, it's unique because it's not like, say, Galatians or 1st or 2nd Corinthians. Because in these letters, Paul is dealing with very specific problems and issues in the church, like Judaizers, like quarreling church members, like sex, alcohol, money, all the good stuff. But here in Ephesians, Paul gives us a cosmic perspective. Now last night, my wife and I went to a ballet to see Don Quixote. And you might think that makes me a good husband. But about halfway through, I started drifting. And I started to think about what was going on behind stage. Now, the drama on the stage before me was entertaining. Um, I was engaged. The dancers were really good. But, you know, I was thinking there is a real drama going on behind the stage as well. You can imagine this, all of the performers scurrying about, high anxiety, this nervousness, changing costumes, fixing their makeup, and all the stage managers back there shuffling all the kids around to get in their position so the timing happening on the front stage would go according to plan. This is a real drama. And maybe worth as much money and as entertaining as the drama on the front stage. So saying all that because Ephesians functions a lot like that drama. See, when Paul gives us a cosmic view of reality, he lifts us off the ground and he places us behind the curtain to see what's really going on. What's going on behind the normal day-to-day of our lives. We hear Paul talk about things from the vantage point of God's perspective, and he talks about before the foundation of the world. He takes us back into eternity. And then he talks about these cosmic rulers and authorities. And we hear about humanity, how they're enslaved to these powers. And then we hear about Christ, who invades the world, overcomes these powers, and he begins to unite all things in himself, Jew and Gentile, breaking down the wall of hostility, and he begins to create in himself one new humanity. Paul takes us behind the curtain, and he shows us there are more actors on the stage than any of us realized. There's God, obviously. There are the authorities and the powers. There are us as individuals, and then there's us as a church. So as we step into Ephesians... We want to keep in mind, there are these various actors. And so let's go to this story. The story of the ascension. If, I forgot to mention this, but as you follow this drama throughout ascension, throughout Ephesians, the ascension is somewhat the drama of the letter. 
And so that's why I refer to it as the story of the ascension, because it all kind of builds up to right here. And in verse 8 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now immediately, Paul is taking us back in time to the early days of Israel. He's quoting Psalm 68, which is a psalm that celebrates the victory of Yahweh as the divine warrior. In the Old Testament, oftentimes writers will refer to Yahweh, the Lord, as a warrior who leads and he fights for his people. And in Psalm 68, which is more or less a poetic story, God is doing that. He's leading his people through the wilderness from Sinai to the promised land. And we know the story. Along the way, people make a mess of their lives. And God continually intercedes and fights for his people and renews his people. Now, Paul quotes, it seems, from verse 18 of the psalm, which is about Yahweh ascending to the throne after a military victory, carrying in his train these defeated enemies who are chained together. And along this way, this procession is singing about and celebrating his victory. And then it says he receives gifts from his people. But notice what Ephesians 4 says. It says he gave gifts to men. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in all the textual details here, but suffice it to say, Paul isn't just quoting from one verse. He's alluding to the entire storyline of Psalm 68. Now, this kind of reminds me in an irreverent way what Paul's doing here, the passive friend you might have who never just says anything directly. He always just alludes to things and forces you to read between the lines, never speaking the direct point. That's kind of what Paul's doing, but he's doing that in order to make a stop and to slow down and to ask what's going on. So if you continue reading through Psalm 68, you will notice these movements through the psalm. There are these very specific warfare practices. People dividing the king's spoil. The procession, as I said, is full of singers and musicians. They're throwing this party in the streets. And the enemies are being dragged, humiliated, before all of God's people. And justice is being established throughout the lands. And the world is breaking into praise. And the king ascends to his throne. And the very last verse of Psalm 68 reads, check this. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives, not receives, gives power and strength to his people. See what's going on here. Paul has just loaded the entire psalm in this one verse. And he's showing us something about the character of God. Now, the amazement of this connection can easily be lost on us. I can see it in your faces. As I heard a friend once say, salvation is a million-dollar gift, and we have a five-dollar response. It's easy for us to lose sight of how big this salvation really is. But what Paul has just done here, and this is so unique for his religion of the day, is that he so completely and consciously identified Jesus, the man, with the divine warrior in this psalm. Which he has essentially identified Jesus as who? The God of Israel. The divine warrior in Psalm 68 is the man, Jesus Christ who is the God of Israel. Now, we live in the shadow of 2,000 years of tradition, history, and theology, and we completely take for granted how outlandish this claim is. Jesus, a man, is the God of Israel. But for a Jewish person, this would be the height of blasphemy. I mean, the highest of heights. To give the man the same equality as the God of Israel would be madness. 
And this is one of the reasons Paul persecuted the early church. The whistleblowing on this equation between associating Jesus with the God of Israel would be without a doubt the most demanding of death. In fact, if you read the Gospels, this is the very reason Jesus is crucified. He so intimately identified himself with the God of Israel, even one with, even as the God of Israel, that he was charged with blasphemy. But this isn't all that Paul's trying to get us all wide-eyed over. See, to really get what Paul's doing here, we have to understand how in identifying Jesus as the God of Israel is Jesus this divine warrior? The divine warrior we spoke of in Psalm 68. How does Jesus conquer his enemies? Now the next verse, Paul says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Now, if you remember the movie Jaws, which came out in 1975, can you believe that, how long ago it was? If you remember the very end of the movie, there's Brody and Hooper. They're the only survivors left sitting in the water. The shark has just demolished their boat, and Brody and Hooper, played by Roy Scheider and Richard Dreyfuss, they're just sitting there in the water, and they're plotting, how are they going to get out of here? How are we going to kill the shark? And you see Brody kind of leaning against the last remaining pieces of the boat and he has a rifle in his hand and the camera takes us to the shark what does the shark have in his mouth do you remember a tank a tank for deep sea diving and so it kind of goes back and forth between Brody and the shark and you see Brody pull up his rifle aims at the tank and starts taking shots and before you know it he makes contact and he blows the shark to smithereens from the inside out and you see shark flesh fly everywhere now, um, as weird as this may sound, when Paul says this divine warrior who ascended to his throne is also the one who descended, Paul is showing us how Jesus conquers his enemies. And just like Brody, taking out the beast in jaws from the inside out, so Jesus comes to destroy our enemies from the inside out by becoming a man. Paul is saying that the God of Israel, as this divine warrior in his conquest, to destroy our enemies. He has come all the way down from heaven into the realm of earth, and he has so fully identified with our misery and the battle that you and I are in that he's taken on himself our very own flesh. The creator has become a creature without ceasing to be the creator. The God of Israel, if I could say it without sounding too heretical, now has arms, now has legs, has hair, has fingernails, as a human body. And so low did the God of Israel descend that as a man he throws himself into the very jaws of our enemies, sin and death and the devil. And so devoted was he to winning you and I back that he submits himself to the darkest of our hells in order to destroy the enemy from the inside out. See, when God willed to save you and I, he willed to be God for us as a man. And he shows us that he is not above putting on our flesh in order to be our God and for us to be his people. Now Paul continues in verse 10 and he says, This one who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now early in the service we read from Psalm 24, which if you remember, is a psalm that refers to one ascending who has clean hands and a pure heart. Obviously, I hope you get the point. It's referring to the one we're talking about here. 
But I want to read this psalm again, just the last several verses. And I want you to notice there's a call and response. There's a sort of a liturgy as such. Now, if you can imagine for a second, Jesus is coming home from battle. He's ascending after defeating his enemies. And like the warrior in Psalm 68, he has a procession behind him of singers and musicians who are celebrating his victory. And the procession, as they enter the king's gates, they call out, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then the heavenly doorkeepers respond, Who is this king of glory? And the procession responds, The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the doorkeepers respond again, But who is this king of glory? And the procession responds one last time, The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. In reflecting on the psalm, Justin Martyr, a Christian apologist from the second century, he insightfully saw in the psalm a picture of Christ ascending after battle. And he writes this, When our Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, the rulers of heaven saw him of uncomely and dishonored appearance and inglorious, not recognizing him. Which is why they inquired, Who is this king of glory? You see, Justin saw in this psalm a response from the gates of heaven in confused wonderment. The very gates of heaven couldn't recognize the Son of God because he was so covered with battle scars and blood, but most astounding of all, still wearing human flesh. There's this famous Rembrandt painting that pictures this son kind of falling into his father's bosom, and the father is holding his son. And on the son, we see this foot that's completely bare, and on the other foot, it's barely covered by this tattered shoe. The son's head is shaved in the most humiliating way, and he's utterly stripped of his youthful glory, and his clothes are in rags, and you see the father embracing the son with these huge, powerful hands, and there's light shining on the father's hands. And this painting for Rembrandt was an image of the return of a prodigal son. But one writer remarked, what if instead of seeing this as a return of a prodigal like us, this is Jesus returning to the Father? Returning in our name on our behalf, having gone to the far country of the lost world, completely prodigal in his love for us, spending all that he had, having faced complete humiliation and separation from his father, he now returns home ragged from his sojourn and the father embraces him with joy and acceptance and he enfolds the son's humanity you could say his new humanity in the robes of his presence what if this picture of the son of god ascending back to the father what if this picture is a picture of the son of god ascending back to the father back as the victorious warrior who is the suffering warrior Now, obviously, some of what I'm saying is meant to be poetic. I know Eric would want to build off of it. I would want to build off of it. Jesus does have an exalted, glorious body, but the point is worth emphasizing. Jesus, the God of Israel, the divine warrior, who defeats our enemies, gives himself over to defeat in order to defeat our enemies. He renews our life by giving his life over to the jaws of death in order to conquer death. He pays for our sins by spending all that he had, being rich, yet for our sakes, becoming poor. He destroys the guilt and power of sin by becoming the wretched sin bearer. 
and he destroys evil and the devil by falling into the jaws of evil. And he destroys him from the inside out. See, if the incarnation is about the God of Israel becoming bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, entering the lowest depths of human misery and tasting our misery and destroying it from the inside out, then the ascension is about the Son of God ascending back to his throne, proudly wearing our humanity, still bearing in his body the marks of the cross and the pledge of our inheritance, which is etched in his palms and seared in his side. In the Old Testament, the king of Israel, his throne was representative of God's throne, but never did the two meet. Yet here for the first time, the earthly throne and the divine throne They're united because our divine warrior, who is God in the flesh, has taken humanity up into the divine throne room. Which is why Saint Irenaeus of Lyon said, he came down to where we were in order to lift us up where he was. All right, let's talk about the church and let's get practical. What does this mean for our identity and our task as the church? Remember the actors on stage, we have God, we have the rulers and the authorities, and we have us as individuals, and there's us as the church. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul makes this daring statement. He says that through the church, through us, the manifold wisdom of God is now being made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I spent a a semester studying in Spain and lived in a town that had a soccer team and uh, lived down the street from the stadium, and at night would just go and hang out on the streets at the pubs and cafes, and most interesting of all is when they had games, because the streets would just blow up. It was like warfare. The streets were just nuts with all the fans coming in from town. But most interesting of all is when the home team lost to the away team, because after the game, the away team fans would come in the streets and march and just chant and just humiliate the home team. It was how the victorious team would continue to humiliate the home team. Now when Paul says through the church the manifold wisdom of God is being made known, this is what he's talking about. Just like the away team celebrating on the home team streets, so through the church, God is showing off his victory through his people to the heavenly authorities and powers. See, you and I were once enemies of God. We were being held captive to the enemy, by the enemy, being deceived by the enemy, and serving the enemy. My first sport ever actually was soccer, and the only goal I ever scored the entire season was for the other team. I didn't even know it. I was celebrating, and I didn't even know I was scoring for the other team. Paul is saying this was our condition. But now, Paul says, we are trophies of God's victory. We're trophies of God's grace, and he's demonstrating his victory through us to the enemy who once held us captive. Now, when we go back to Ephesians 4, when Paul says, Christ ascended on high and he gave gifts, he's referring to the gifts that he gives us, the church, on the day of Pentecost. The primary gift being the Holy Spirit who gifts individuals. And in Ephesians 4, Paul lays out these very specific gifts which aren't meant to be exhaustive, because if they were, the church would be a huge mouth, just a huge talking head, because all these gifts are word gifts. 
He says that Christ gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. See, what Paul is showing us is that the gifts that Christ gives are people who, had word, who have word gifts, but they're given to people in order to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry. Now, Paul doesn't lay out these other gifts, but if you go to his other letters like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and I won't get into all the gifts there, but to suffice it to say, each one of you in here has been given a gift by the ascended Christ for the sake of building up the church. When Christ gave gifts, he gave his own very spirit. He gave himself to indwell each one of you. And there's something that only you can do for the church that God's calling you to do. A very specific gift that God has given you for the sake of building up his church. Now what this shows us is that Christians never do life alone. They were never given a gift for the sole means of having a gift. You were given a gift for service. And it also means we, need each, we each need one another in order to be healthy, to be mature, to be united. It takes everyone on board. Christ is calling every single one of you on board to help build up the church. Now you might be thinking, you don't have anything to offer. Or you might be thinking, I have a gift, but it doesn't seem that significant. I can't imagine how it could be used for the sake of building up the church. If you read on in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul turns this way of thinking completely upside down. Remember, he uses the body as a metaphor. He talks about the hands, the head, the feet, the eyes, the nose. And then he says this. On those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts, they are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Now, I'll have to spell it out for you here. Paul's referring to sexual organs here. Do you see what he's doing? He's using that image not only to be provocative, but he's also showing us how we are to view each other's gifts. See, those of you who think you don't have a good gift, an honorable gift, who think their gift is somehow unpresentable, not going to be used, well, Paul would say these are the gifts we show the greater honor to. See, in first century Roman culture, those who were honored were the best speaking, the best looking, the ones who had it all together, the heroes of the culture, not much different from our culture. But Paul is saying here in the church, it's not how it is. The church follows in the footsteps of its king. Now listen, this is how the ascension informs our identity as a church. Because think about this. How did the Son of God use his power? So we typically use our power and our gifts to get control over others, to manipulate others. We want to get ahead. We want to move up. But what did Jesus do? He used his power to serve. His power brought him low. He bowed the knee, he washed the feet, and he died our death. Because of such, he was exalted. He who is the greatest of all became the servant of all, and he considered our needs above his own. 
and he placed his honor upon us. And he reversed the way we normally think by showing honor to those who he'd least expect, which is us, the church. So when the church is using all of, its, all of its gifts this way, when we speak the truth in love, when we are humble, when we are gentle, when we are patient, when we bear with one another, when we seek not to get honor but to show honor, we're imitating our king. And when we are all working together to build up the body of Christ, God is putting on display his manifold wisdom. All right, we're coming to an end. Now all this talk about victory and gifts and the church and what you're called to, it can sound good right here as we're gathered. But let's be honest. When we leave here, it's going to be difficult. At least for me, when I leave church, or I should say when I leave the building the church meets in, life is just complex. It's exhausting. I feel like there's not enough time to do everything I feel like the church should be called to do. On top of that, Marriages are difficult. My wife and I got in a fight this morning getting ready to come here. Kids drive us crazy. Jobs are boring. Some of us are jobless. Our health fails us. We have sins that haunt us, that we keep in the dark. And we think there's no way I can live into this reality called the church, where everything just works together and we're all working together to use our gifts. Well, I want you to know this. There is no arrival point in the Christian life. The greatest myth you can believe is that there's a threshold you're going to walk through one day and it's all just going to click and it's going to work for you. Because the truth is, we're all on a journey together. Christ calls us to pick up our cross and to follow him daily. And it's hard, it's painful, it's cumbersome, it's confusing, it's trying. But this is why the ascension is such good news. See, our warrior and King Jesus, he's also our brother. This is who we're following. He is bone of our bone and he's flesh of our flesh, which means right now he sympathizes with you. He understands on the deepest level what it's like to be tempted. He knows weakness. He knows humiliation. He knows suffering. And he knows this because he's a man just like us. And he sits at the right hand of God as a man for us. And I want to close with a quote from John Calvin. He says what I wish I could say, and um, just bear with me. It's a long quote, but it's majestic and it's good. Thus, since he has gone up there and is in heaven for us, let us note that we need not fear to be in this world. It is true that we are subject to so much misery that our condition is pitiable. But at that, we need neither to be astonished nor confine our attention to ourselves. Thus we look to our head, who is already in heaven, and say, although I am weak, there's Jesus Christ who is powerful enough to make me stand upright. Although I am feeble, there's Jesus Christ who is my strength. Although I am full of miseries, Jesus Christ in immortal glory is in immortal glory and what he has will sometime be given to me and I shall partake of all his benefits.
Yes, the devil is called the prince of this world, but what of it? Jesus Christ holds him back, for he is king of heaven and earth. There are devils above us in the air who make war against us, but what of it? Jesus Christ rules above, having entire control of the battle. Thus, we need not doubt that he gives us the victory. I am here subject to so many changes, which may cause me to lose courage, but what of it? The Son of God is my head, who is exempt from all change. I must then take confidence in him. This is how we must look at his ascension, applying the benefits to ourselves. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as the ascended one right now, you are present because you've given your spirit. We know you sympathize with us, you understand us, but you've promised to give your strength and power to us, so we ask for it. So in your sweet, holy, precious, victorious name, would you give it for our sake, for your glory. Pray this in your name. Amen.